0: to another episode of the true crime society podcast with stephanie and olivia today we are going to be talking about the tote family you may know them as the todd family but actually apparently it's pronounced Tote.
1: i always thought it was, it was todd so hopefully we won't yeah. slip
0: up but so if we slip up <laughs> don't leave us a bad review about how we can't even say their name right <laughs> we do know <laughs> we're just used to saying tot <laughs> yeah we're just used to saying tot
2: Osceola County Sheriff Russ Gibson is giving an update now on the four bodies found inside a home in celebration. Let's listen in.
3: An active investigation, and I'm going to attempt to answer your questions at the end of this, uh, but there are still some things that I won't be able to divulge at this time. Uh, On January 13th, 2020, Osceola County Sheriff's Deputies responded to 2002 Reserve Place in celebration to assist federal agents from the Department of Health and Human Services and in serving a federal arrest warrant for Anthony Tote. Anthony Tote's date of birth is September 29, 1975. Deputies made contact with Anthony in the home, along with federal agents, as he, and he was immediately detained. A safety check of the home was conducted where deputies discovered four deceased individuals inside. The home was immediately secured, and a search warrant was obtained by our detectives. <clears throat> Detectives and forensic investigators began their investigation and crime scene processing. The medical examiner's office also responded to the scene, and an autopsy was done the following day. The reports of the autopsy determined that the cause of death of the four decedents inside the home to be homicide.
1: So we'll start with a bit of a background about their lives. Megan Gula was born on January 28th, 1977 in New London, Connecticut. She met Anthony Tote while they were both attending Montville High School in Connecticut. They were high school sweethearts, and at the time this all happened, they'd been together for about 30 years. Tony Tote, as he's called in most media, Tony Tote, was voted most likely to succeed in his high school class, and he was also the valedictorian.
0: Well, they were wrong.
1: Yeah, I know. He doesn't – anyway, we'll talk about it, but he doesn't seem very – you know, I guess up up to a point he probably was quite successful, but now we're looking back on it, definitely they were wrong. (laughs) Uh, So after Megan graduated from high school, she obtained an undergraduate degree and she also got her master's degree in physical therapy. She enjoyed living a healthy lifestyle and she was also a talented singer and musician. Tony and Megan both became physical therapists and they had a thriving practice in Colchester, Connecticut, which was called Family Physical Therapy. They had a company website, which has now been taken down, but I'll just read you out their bios because it gives you a little bit more, um, you know, insight into what they were like. So it says Megan Tote received her master's degree in physical therapy from Sacred Heart University in 2001, which included rotations in paediatrics, acute care, outpatient PT and skilled nursing facilities. She has extensive knowledge in paediatric physical therapy throughout the country, and she was licensed in Connecticut, California and Florida. After receiving her master's degree, Megan pursued her 200-hour certification as a yoga instructor and is also licensed as a rehabilitative yoga instructor. She enjoys integrating yoga into her overall therapy practice and in her free time, she spends time with her family, being a mum, hiking, reading and traveling. So then Tony's bio from their website reads, Anthony Tote received his master's degree in physical therapy in 1999 from Sacred Heart University. His rotations included home care, outpatient physical therapy, wound management, acute post-surgical therapy, and inpatient rehab. Anthony is licensed as well in California, Florida, and Connecticut, and has had the fortune to further his physical therapy experience through experiences throughout the country and his involvement in rehabilitating professional athletes, progressive surgical procedures, and continued to his prove, improve his knowledge through continuing education at the same. As far as I can tell, Tony didn't list his likes, you know, his hobbies and things like that, but it does say he became a national certified sports and conditioning spell- specialist and a Nesta, which I'm assuming is some type of organization, speed, agility, and quickness coach. So you can tell from that that Megan really enjoyed being a mother. She included it in her work bio, and there's an excerpt that we've got from her obituary. So it says, her entire being was encompassed in her motherhood and she did whatever she could to support her family. Megan will always be remembered as having an exciting zest for life and learning and for giving her children that same enthusiastic curiosity for the world around them. So she really did love her kids. We'll learn a bit more about, you know, how involved she was with them in a minute when we talk about how she homeschooled them. Um, So the tote marriage seemed fine from the outside. There was no prior domestic violence charges that we could find. Um, I know that you sent through some notes, Steph, from people who knew them and said, you know, that this was totally shocking. No one ever could have seen this coming. Um, I think I was thinking about that after you sent it. And there's a lot of cases, I think most of the time, people don't see it coming. Like Chris Watts, for example, is one that sprung to mind.
0: Yeah. I mean, I guess you don't assume someone's going to
1: turn into a family annihilator. No. If they're relatively normal. And, like, you know, just reading this comment, and it's like Tony, they're saying Tony couldn't have done that, you know, things like that. So, which I think it's pretty clear that he did. You know, I guess you never know what happens to someone to break them down to a point when they can do something like this. But the whole incident seemed to come out of the blue to people. No one has come out and said they were ever worried that Tony would do something like this. So,
0: yeah, um, one of the cons says, one thing I do know and what confused me most here was he loved his kids. He'd show me pictures of his daughter all dressed up for holidays or brag about how well his sons were doing in extracurricular activities. He'd say he loved homeschooling them and that his wife was a wonderful teacher. He loved bringing the kids to Disney World. I'm aware we don't know what's going on in other people's minds, but what he portrayed to me doesn't add up with his evil actions. I believe he did this 100%. I just can't see why.
1: So you spoke about the children in that thing. They had three children together. There was Alexander, who was 13 at the time. Tyler was 11, and little Zoe was four. So Megan homeschooled all the kids. Alex loved history and soccer, and like his mum, he loved playing the piano. Tyler was the comedian of the family. He always made everyone laugh and smile. He loved helping others, and he was great at math and piano little Zoe was full of life and was the princess of the family. She loved playing her harmonica and she was excited to start ballet lessons. So when you look at photos of them, you know, they seem like really sweet kids. They're always smiling, laughing, look a bit cheeky. Um, there's photos online of, you know, there's a photo of Megan with the three kids. They're all laughing, you know, really, really wild smiles. There's a photo I found of Tony Tot and the kids with the dog Breezy. Um, you know, they just seem like a normal... Family. There's a photo of them. We'll put it all up in the blog anyway, but photos of them riding their bikes. You know, just cute, sweet little kids, it seems like. Mm-hmm. So at some point, the family moved from Connecticut to Celebration, Florida. So if you're not familiar with the town of Celebration, it's a bit um, Stepford. Yeah, a bit Stepford. Like it was it was built by Walt Disney Company in the 90s and about 7,500 people lived there. So I found an article by insider.com, which explains a little bit about celebration It says some believe celebration was originally supposed to be inspired by Walt Disney's dream of creating a perfect utopian city, which would have been named the experimental prototype community of tomorrow or Epcot. His original plan involved placing the entire city under a climate controlled dome and limiting transportation options to maximize monorail usage. But none of Disney's original version came to fruition in Celebration, and Walt Disney died before the town could be born. But we found this clip which explains a little bit more about Celebration and how it kind of looks perfect from the outside, but it's not quite so perfect once you actually get in there.
3: When Celebration saw its first residents move into town during the summer of 1996, everything seemed great. The town center was beautiful, the houses looked idyllic, the streets cozy and inviting. It was figuratively a Main Street USA that you could actually live in. However, it wouldn't be long before the flaws and troubles of the town began to surface and it would start to receive criticism from the outside. What was meant to be a perfect town was apparently not so perfect.
4: When it was first announced demand to live here was so high, Disney ran a lottery. Bill and Susan Bona were among the first 400 winners.
2: I think people came here because thinking they were going to be living on Main Street USA and you know the pixie dust would be sprinkled and their life would be perfect and They wanted the monorail to pick them up at their front door and, you know, this is real life, real mortgages, real jobs.
3: While many residents of the brand-new town were quick to praise the sense of community that the neo-traditionalist design aimed to foster, they were also quick to highlight a pretty glaring flaw, which is that the houses, well, they kind of sucked.
1: So, the family moved to Celebration. Um, because Megan had been having some health issues. We believe that she was suffering with Lyme disease, and I think they thought the warmer weather and, you know, the maybe more tolerable climate might have helped her. It says in that
0: comment I was reading before, he said that the reason they were not living together full-time, according to him, is because she has physical health issues and feels better in a warmer climate, and Tony... Was not in a position to let his business go or rebuild one in celebration, so he stayed in Connecticut for half of the week.
1: It must have cost a lot for them to commute back and forth, for him to commute back and forth. I always thought that was crazy. I actually still think it's crazy. I remember when I um, used to live in Vancouver in Canada, there was a guy there who I used to work with, and he was from Toronto, so they would fly him back and forth, Toronto to Vancouver every week, multiple times. Because, yeah. you know, he was obviously so never. valuable. I'd be so exhausted. Oh, imagine if that would be all your free time. You would have no other life, really.
0: Yeah.
1: Anyway, so, yeah, the next bit was that Tony kept his offices open in Colchester, Connecticut and used to travel back and forth. Megan, as far as I can tell, uh, wasn't practicing physical therapy anymore. She was just looking after and homeschooling the kids and i guess working on health issues as well. So before we get into what actually happened to them, we i think it's important that we give you a bit of a timeline about you know the last months of their life just so you can kind of see where this all started brewing and what happened. So Tony was issued his first medical license on October, sorry, August 10, 1999. He let his Florida license expire in 2007 and his Connecticut license expired on September 20, 2019. He still saw patients there, though, up until Thanksgiving 2019, which is what, like late November there?
0: Yeah, so that's basically two months of him illegally seeing patients.
1: Yeah. Um, He was last seen confirmed by his family in Connecticut on November 22nd. So, oh, sorry, after Thanksgiving, which was November 28th that year, Tony began cancelling all his client appointments. He said this was due to personal reasons. The last confirmed communication that anyone had with Megan Tote was on December, sorry, Megan Tote, (laughs) was on December 13th, Uh and that was with Alex's teacher. The last known sighting of the entire family, which is Tony, Megan and the kids, was on December 15. They were seen by a neighbor with their car packed full and that was in the driveway of their celebration home. So that's an interesting, you know, that's the last absolute time that they were seen. Alex apparently texted the teacher on December 16. I've never seen what that said. Someone might be able to send it through if they know, but That was, you know, the last text he had with the teacher. And Mm. at some point in the week prior to Christmas, so after December 16, around then, Tony told Megan's aunt Cindy to not worry if she didn't hear from the family for a while. Cindy said, he texted me that they were turning their phones off. They were going off the grid. Sketchy.
0: Yeah. If anyone ever says I'm going off the grid, just know (laughs) that they're going to murder me because I would not agree to go off the grid.
1: (laughs) So around this, all this time, there was rumours that Tony was possibly involved in a Medicaid or Medicare fraud scheme, um, and the family's financial troubles came to light. On December 22, an eviction notice was given to them for their celebration home as they didn't hadn't paid rent. So we've got a clip here where that speaks about them getting the notice from the landlord, and I think the landlord also
2: turned off the power around that same time the house came by and was peering in the windows. He told her he was trying to determine if his renters had moved out because they had failed to pay the rent and he had recently cut off the electricity. I don't know what happened. I want answers, but I don't know if we'll ever get the answers. Now, my colleague, Greg Fox, has been digging for information about the family we've learned from court documents was renting that house. Greg, what can you tell us?
5: Well, we confirmed through Osceola County court records on that eviction that you had mentioned uh, just a moment ago, Amanda, and also compared that with election records, voter records up in the state of Connecticut, as well as a series of business emails that matched in both the lease records here and business records in Connecticut to confirm that this is, in fact, Megan and uh, Tony Todd uh, that are originally from Connecticut. Family physical therapy is in Colchester, Connecticut. Locals call it a popular place for sports medicine, especially for young athletes. A small bouquet of flowers on the door is near a sign that says it will reopen in the new year. It's owned by Tony and Megan Todd, who, according to property records, have owned an Osceola County condominium since 2005 and have lived off and on in both states. While Megan's license in Connecticut is current, records obtained by WESH2 Investigates shows her husband's is inactive after it lapsed in September due to non-renewal. Tony Todd also operated another business out of their physical therapy building called Performance Edge Sports, which has been under investigation by the attorney general's office. A spokeswoman tells me the office of the Connecticut attorney general can confirm we have an open false claims act investigation into Anthony Todd. Beyond that, we are unable to comment or provide further details. No other information is being provided about the investigation or the couple who, according to their Facebook pages and multiple social media posts, have three children.
1: So we found out that on December 23, the day after the eviction notice, Tony paid an amount of $278,908.51 to settle a lawsuit against his physical therapy practice. He'd been hit with three lawsuits and he only settled this one. In all the ca- all three cases, he'd accepted ad- investor funding for his business, but defaulted on the payments. So he also, in a- in addition to the two hundred and seventy eight thousand, he also owed sixty three thousand five hundred and twenty five dollars and eighty two cents, and the other one was thirty six thousand two hundred and seventy nine dollars. So that is a lot of money. He owes, you mm-hmm. know, nearly four hundred thousand dollars. Um, To the investors. And he also was behind on the rent in the amount of $5,132.05. God, just talking about it gives me anxiety. Oh, gosh, I know. And he, like, just him working, you know, I, I know he seems like he was probably successful up to a point, but that is a lot of money. He and
0: must the other have thing, been. which, he yeah, physical therapy, you had to go to school for a long time.
1: And the other thing, too, I found interesting is that apparently the family, owned a home in celebration as well. So I don't know what the deal with is that. That makes
0: no sense to me.
1: Maybe their house was too small for them or I don't know. I don't know what the deal with that, but that's an interesting aside that I've seen. So the family started to worry when they hadn't been able to get in touch with them for Christmas. They texted Tony and asked them for photos of the kids with the Christmas gifts, but he told them everyone was sleeping, which is a bit weird. So Christmas you get up early. (laughs) No, especially three kids. They'll be up early. That's like the biggest red flag. <laughs> On December 29, a family member phoned the local sheriff and asked for a welfare check. The sheriff uh, released a statement, said, our office received a request by a family man- member of Anthony Tote who resides outside the state of Florida to check the well-being of the family because she had been told they had the flu and she had not heard from them for two days. They went to the home but they couldn't get in they couldn't contact anyone inside the home and in quotes it says they did not observe anything suspicious so January 8th so that's you know nearly 10 days after that the family members got a text from Tony's phone it was apparently from someone in a Sarasota Starbucks messaging to say they had found his phone so this is kind of when it all started kicking off you know no one can get a hold of Tony or Megan. Tony's phone has apparently been found in a Starbucks, you know, not near their house. So everyone starts to kind of panic. Danielle was the first one in our group to have heard about this case, I think. And so she made a post on January 12, 2020, and it said missing. The Tote family was last heard from via text messages on the 6th of January. Tony and Megan are husband and wife and have three young children. Tony is a physical therapist based out of Colchester, Connecticut. The family lives in Celebration, Florida. A neighbour said they saw the family drive away in their car on the 15th of December with a packed car. There isn't any news coverage about this yet, but the family is worried and said the authorities in Connecticut and Florida are involved. So around this time, the family also made a group for them. Um, There was still no mainstream media coverage at at the time. The group was called Looking for the Tote family Um, One of the posts that I've just captured to, you know, mention is it says, Hi, everyone. Unfortunately, we do not have updates at this time. We wish we did. It is important to remember that family is behind this page. Family. We understand your your frustration in the lack of information. We are frustrated too. We are following the lead of authorities because it is an active investigation. We promise to update you as we can. Please continue to share.
0: I remember when the family made their group, everyone thought –
1: was it his sister? Yeah, I'm sure it was the sisters.
0: But I don't remember exactly why. I don't know if you do, but everyone was saying like they were just making like really weird statements. And I remember people thinking that the family had just like up and left and that the sisters knew about it or something.
1: I think everyone always thought that the sisters kind of knew more, which I'm I'm assuming they probably maybe knew about the fraud a little bit more than, you know, the public did, because I don't think we knew yeah. about the fraud at that point. That came out a bit later, but... At the time, the family did say, which is still interesting to me now, that they knew where the family's cars were and that one was believed to be at Bradley Airport in Windsor Locks, Connecticut. So that, to me, now that seems like maybe a bit of a lie because I'm assuming the, car, the main family car was probably at their home in the garage.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: So it, it's like a weird thing for me. You know, it seems weird to me that they released that information. I'm assuming he probably left his car at the airport all the time when he flew back to Florida, so that one kind of makes sense. But
0: I saw someone said um, on Reddit again, so I don't know if this is true, but they said that the family actually had three cars, but they had located two of them. Right. That might make sense. Maybe, Yeah, maybe they had two in Florida with the family, and then he had one. one. So they probably knew where the Connecticut
1: was, one, yeah.
0: Yeah, that makes sense.
1: They also found at that time that the family dog Breezy was also missing. Um, Again, I don't know. It's kind of weird to me. Like they did a check. No one answered the door. So how did they actually know? I guess Breezy maybe wasn't running around outside if that's where it used to run around. But I don't know. Weird anyway. Yeah. So it all starts happening on January 13, 2020, which was 15 days after the first welfare check was conducted. Federal police went to the Tote House in regards to a probe about an open False Claims Act investigation. They had search warrants and they were able to enter the property. Tony told them that his wife was sleeping and he even called upstairs for her at one point and that the that, kids... That kills me. <laughs> hey, come <calm> down. <laughs> I wonder what he thought was going to happen anyway. <laughs> and, and that all the kids were away at a sleepover but the authorities have said they could smell decomposition. They said that through the open master bedroom door, someone was lying on the floor wrapped in blankets. They knew it was a person because there was a foot sticking out of the covers and that foot was black and blue. They began looking around and they found that there were four bodies wrapped in blankets in severely decomposed states inside the house. And they also found the body of the family dog Breezy. Tony was taken to hospital at the time and his condition was unknown. I remember that when um, we, f- we saw this all coming out and they were like, you know, what happened? Was it a, um, had they all been in a car, for example? You know, we didn't know that they were all wrapped in blankets. So we were like, were they all found in a car? Did they, you know, was it a suicide pact? What, what was, was Tony barely alive? We were all waiting to hear more about his condition because we still didn't know what had happened at that time. Mm-hmm. Was it a murder-suicide? We didn't – it wasn't – it was said basically straight off the bat that there was no threat to the community, which is our favorite saying. So, we assumed <laughs> that it wasn't a murder by a stranger and that Tony had just somehow randomly survived. We, we assumed that, you know, it was within the but family. you never know because they
0: always say that.
1: So Yeah. And still in many cases that are unsolved, which I'm sure we've spoken about before, but <laughs> – Anyway, (laughs) and so, yeah, the rumors at the time were that the kids had been found in a vehicle, so maybe they'd been gassed and then the parents took their own lives or, you know, Tony tried to take his life some other way. A neighbor visited the house the day before the bodies were found and she sent some messages to our Facebook page. We won't put her name in, but her message is, I was at the door yesterday. I knocked, walked all around the house. There was a window open upstairs. It's a huge house. I didn't smell anything, but the house felt weird. I immediately got a headache and felt sick to stomach, which sounds dramatic, but it's true. It didn't smell. It was weird. You could almost hear the weird, which is interesting to me because you'd think, I don't know, I guess if there's a window open, you'd think there'd be some type of smell, but maybe it was, I don't know, far enough away from the body so that it didn't come out of the window. Yeah,
0: I don't Maybe I don't you know. just... It's not the first thing that
1: comes to your head. Yeah. We found um, another clip or a clip of another neighbor speaking about the family and, you know, what they used to be like
2: we didn't see anything. We didn't hear anything. Michelle Augustine and her mother live next to the celebration home where four bodies were found and a suspect still unidentified by investigators was taken into custody. Augustine says they never heard or saw anything that would indicate a tragedy had occurred. I haven't seen the family in weeks. They used to always park right
3: in front of us so we'd see them every day come in and out with the kids and the last time i saw them was
2: around thanksgiving time augustine and her mother say the man in this photo who was seen being put into handcuffs at the house monday morning is named tony and he and his wife and three young kids had been renting that house since last may they say at Thanksgiving they had a brief friendly conversation with the man and then assumed the family had traveled out of town because the normal activity of the home had ceased.
3: They would swim in the pool midnight, 1 a.m. The whole family would be swimming. Um, they had a basketball hoop in the backyard. They'd always be playing in the driveway with a
2: basketball hoop. So always toys and seemed like a happy family. Augustin says the first indication something might be amiss came last Friday when the owner of
1: Uh, So we finally then started getting some more information about Tony's condition. The news agency, I think it's WESH or WESH, I don't know, either one, said he was seen being ordered out by deputies with guns drawn and was taken away in handcuffs. He was in the hospital for a few days and we learned that he had apparently been treated after he ingested excessive Benadryl and threatened to kill himself. Uh, And a reporter called Lauren Seabrook from WFTV released a little bit more information They It says, you know, they made announcements for Tony to come out and when he didn't, they went in. He told them Megan was sleeping. There was no response. They found the bodies and they said Anthony could barely stand and agreed to be shaking. They say he confirmed he was of sound mind and agreed to speak when they read his Miranda warning and then the confession followed. So we finally found out a little bit more on January 15, which was two days after they found the bodies. Police held a press conference. They announced that Anthony Tote had admitted to murder in his family and that he was cooperating with police. When he recovered from his overdose, he was charged with four counts of premeditated murder and one count of animal cruelty. He did not reveal a motive to police. Police believed that Megan and the kids had been dead since late December. They could not confirm what date they died. And even to this day, I don't think they've ever said a date. They've, you know, said they died in this date range, but they've never actually known a date, which is interesting to me. I guess, you know, with no power in the house and all that, the decomposition would have been sped up a lot too. But I
0: feel like once it goes to trial, they're going to have to have a closer date as to when they were alive because even like I'm assuming they had social media or something like just – and At even what point things like logins, accessing everything. Yeah,
1: yeah. Like even for the kids, you know, I'm assuming they had some type of devices or a computer, or you know, they they must be able yeah, to like pinpoint it. Yeah, see when they are active. Yeah.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Uh, we also started to find out some more details about their financial struggles. The eviction notice had been served as they were one month behind in rent, so that means that their rent was about five thousand a month. But oddly, they remained in the home, even even though they owned a home, which we spoke about in Celebration, that was 500 feet away from their rental. So that's interesting. I'm assuming that was probably rented out maybe as well, which is why they couldn't just move in there. But anyway, so how did Tony just fall so far from Grace? On the same day, January 15th, a criminal complaint was released and we learned more.
4: Tonight, our first look at the FBI's investigation into the man accused of murdering his wife and three children. The federal case linked health care fraud. Osceola County deputies say Anthony Tote killed his family inside their celebration home and kept the bodies there possibly for weeks. News 6's Eric Sandoval spent tonight investigating who this man is. So Eric, what did you find out? Well,
6: this is just a heartbreaking story to begin with, yeah. Ginger. Um, we got a hold of this federal investigation today. It was actually unsealed in federal court. And I found out that Anthony Tote is accused of health care fraud. Agents were trying to arrest him at his home in celebration. They say he owned a couple physical therapy clinics in Connecticut. And when finances got tight, they say he got himself into trouble.
4: Any
1: explanation as to what happened?
6: Tonight, Anthony Tote is in the Osceola County Jail accused of murdering his wife and three children. Seen here in photos circulated on social
3: media. Myself, I cannot understand... What would cause a person to commit such evil and horrendous acts? News 6 found out some of Tote's troubles began last year.
6: That's when federal agents began investigating the physical therapy business he owns in Connecticut, a business he flew to each week from Orlando. They say they found out Tote had been engaging in a health care fraud scheme. They say he submitted fraudulent claims for physical therapy sessions to Medicaid and some big insurance companies. Investigators say his clinics were in financial trouble. They say he had borrowed money from 20 different lenders to keep it afloat. They say in August alone, one month's payment for those loans was $99,000. In November, agents Say Tote admitted to billing for services he didn't provide, saying he was living above his means. In December, they say Tote stopped responding to them. His clinic closed, and paychecks to his workers started to bounce. And it doesn't stop there. Court records show Tote and his family were also facing eviction in celebration. Now, early this month, federal agents found out Tote's relatives hadn't heard from them. And uh, tonight, he faces four murder charges. He's going to face a judge on those charges tomorrow afternoon, Ginger.
1: So from the criminal complaint, we learned that in April 2019, the FBI started their investigation of Tony and his business, which was called Performance Edge Sports, LLC they were suspected of a scheme to defraud Medicaid, Anthem, Cigna, and other insurance programs. The scheme was to bill for services that they didn't actually provide to patients. And the offices for the business were known as family physical therapy. So Tony allegedly falsified documents on two minor sibling patients to send out to another physical therapy office where he required that they transfer out of his care. The files the services provided were mirror images of each other even though the kids had different diagnoses in another minor patient case he billed for 4 plus times a week services between the dates of November 1 2017 and December 5 2018 even though the patient had been cleared by Tony and the surgeon on October 25 2017 so he continued to bill this patient for over a year you know or bill medicaid or whoever for the patient for over a year after they were cleared. Mm -hmm. Medicaid paid Tony $17,194 for these claims. It's assumed he did this with Medicaid because they didn't didn't issue explanation of benefit forms to members.
0: I was thinking also, I wonder if it was easier for that to happen because so many places are paperless now and like who's really logging on to like look at your statements and stuff from doctor's offices
1: and I guess if you know if if you don't have to pay I know I'm not totally familiar with how it all works there but if you're not paying like why would you even
0: basically for people who aren't familiar with health insurance I mean I used to work in doctor's offices so I'm not like an expert or anything but the doctor codes what services they gave you during the visit so like you know they drew blood they give you an x-ray and they like cleaned your ears or something. That's like three different codes, yeah, codes. charges. Then it goes to the insurance company. Basically, they decide what they're going to pay for and what you're going to pay for. But some insurance companies plans to cover the whole thing. Some don't. So yeah, like if they're covering the whole thing, why are you going to go look at your statement?
1: Yeah. So he obviously, you know, figured out a way to get around it. So he, this went on for years and years.
0: Until he, until he ran into some Karens who checked their,
1: their bills. <laughs> I didn't – yeah, why are you charging me for this? Um, <laughs> With their color-coded code, calendars. <laughs> um, he falsely billed Medicaid for services to a child who'd been ho- hospitalized. He was paid $334.71. So now we get to the Karens. <laughs> um, witness number three – The provide- Karens that saved the day. <laughs> blew it all apart. Witness number three provided 16 months of color-coded family calendars that showed there were no services provided on the dates that Tony had billed Medicaid and Anthem Blue Cross for, which was July 24th, 2018 to April 17th, 2019. Tony claimed that for those 34 weeks, their child had had physical therapy three to five times a week. He was paid $22,964. So another family, which was a mum, dad and two kids, was seen by Tony until February 7th, 2019. He billed them for 21 dates of service and was paid nearly $17,000. Another minor patient was seen approximately 10 times in office, but Tony billed Medicaid for 103 dates and they paid him $12,673. So, when the patients asked him about co pays, Tony would tell them they were on his friends and family plan mm. and he would just accept what the insurance paid him for the visits. That's not how that works. So, this is <laughs> going on and on. He billed for services done on Saturday when the office was closed, but only on patients oh, that's under my 19. Partner. On August 3, two agents did surveillance at both offices. Both locations were clearly closed and had no patients on the schedule, but Tony billed Medicaid for services on 16 patients that day. Each patient was seen allegedly for nine units of physical therapy, which totaled 15 minutes each. According to this, um, which was the current procedural terminology manual they were all codes used for services were 15 minutes or less so each patient was seen for a total of 2 hours so he worked a, a 32 hour saturday <laughs> <laughs> on october 4 2019 a search warrant was applied for and issued to agents for the officer's web pt account Agents learned that the software has an audit log, which shows how many times patient records were accessed and changed. And only one file was accessed on August 3, 2019 from an IP address in Florida. Tony was in Orlando on August 3, so he couldn't have done physical therapy on 16 whole patients that day. He was paid $20,833 for providing physical therapy to patients on eight Saturdays between the 3rd of February 2018 and the 17th of August 2019. He's just getting in deeper and deeper because he took – he and his physical therapy office took loans or advances from over 20 commercial lenders to fund the business between January 2015 and June 2018, so three and a half years. That's oh, making my chest tight. <laughs> how do you have – how do you even keep track? I know. I don't – like I just – I don't even know where all like this money was going. 20 lenders? The FBI assumed that Tony had been doing the Medicare fraud to cover the payment he owed to these lenders. So November 21, 2019, so this is right before, you know, everything happened, his officers were searched with a warrant. He was interviewed and admitted to being the only person in charge of billing. He said that he was the sole perpetrator in the fraud and he claimed that living above their means was the best way to put their situation and that Megan had no idea of what was going on. He told investigators that he wanted to plead guilty. So I found a Facebook post um, from someone who knew Tony. I'll just read out some of it. So they're speaking about his Westchester office in Connecticut. I believe the Westchester location was open to accommodate the brand new aqua therapy fish tank which is why I became a patient. The location was closer and cheaper than the alternative pool therapy in Glastonbury. He told me he had to borrow hundreds of thousands of dollars for that unit. While they had back-to-back patients using it for the first couple of months I noticed that there were fewer people fewer patients and less people using the fish tank. The equipment sat empty and sucked up loads of electricity to maintain the temperature in the holding tanks. I believe he expected a lot more patients to cover that 2016 investment and it did not pan out as inve- as expected. I'm guessing they may have had to borrow more money to cover loans, fees, interest, second location staff and operating cost. This may have been the beginning of his debt issues. The billing errors, now that I think about it, showed up around November 2016. I started PT September 2016 and got my first statement October. I believe he got the fish tank in the summer of 2016. <laughs> I started to go there a few weeks after he announced aqua therapy option on a Colchester Facebook group. So he obviously made a big, big investment that didn't quite pan out for him. And I guess that's why, you know, where it all started to spiral from. Um, So they searched the offices in November on December four, the agents still had not heard from Tony, despite him telling them that him and his attorney would be in touch as soon as possible. But then he also claims then that he was still attempting to find a lawyer. Sounds a bit like Megan Boswell's mother. Yeah, I forgot about that. (laughs) Um, Sometime around then, the agents reached out to employees of the physical therapy office. They told the agents that Tony said he'd be back to practice but never returned. Their paychecks were bouncing and they just stopped coming to work and both offices were closed. Bad for the employees. Oh no, how terrible just to you know imagine having to deal with that. Abandon them, yeah. On January 7, agents who were trying to reach Tony contacted his family in Connecticut, and that is when they learned that the family were missing. So then, that was not long after that, that they did the search warrants and all that and found the family. So we found some messages while we were looking into the case, you know around the time it all happened that Megan and the children were very active within a school co-op in their area. I won't name the co-op here because I know that they've had a lot of negative messages and things like that around this. but the rumor is that the fees per child were around $10,000 a year. So that would be, no, no no, I don't think Zoe had started school yet, but when she did, that would be30,000 a year, which is a lot of money for someone who was already struggling in debt, Yeah. So, January 17, an eviction notice was served to Tony in regards to his offices in Colchester. The legal document says that Tony did not pay rent for December and January and that he owed $6,290. So, we're up to about $10,000 with the house and the offices in unpaid rent. Um, So, he was in very, very deep. January 24... The Osceola County Sheriff's Office confirmed what we all really already knew, that the bodies they'd found belonged to Megan Tote and her children. Megan's body was found underneath blankets in a bed and her two sons were on mattresses on the floor and wrapped in blankets. There was no sign of Zoe as they searched the house. They eventually discovered her under the blanket near her mother's feet. Um, I know that at the time there was a video of the house um do you remember this there's a video of the house in an open window yeah. and a lot of people were speculating that you could see either blood or a wrapped up body on the bed um I still am on the fence about that I don't I think it was probably it could have been bloody like a bloody blanket I don't think it was a body mm-hmm. we'll put the photo up on the thing anyway so on the blog so you can have a look but it sounds anyway we'll get we'll, the crime scene photos do get released so we'll just speak about that in a minute too. So even though Tony confessed, his family released a statement. It was from Tony's sister, um, and it says, Tony and Megan were devoted, loving parents who loved their children and breezy every day and were so involved in their communities. The families of Megan and Tony ask for privacy during this difficult time in our lives as we mourn the lose, which should be loss, of our families. So I wonder what Megan's family thought about that, if they were on board with that or... It'd be a hard situation to be in, but I don't know if I'd be happy with a family releasing a statement like that in a situation like this. No. Um, So, January 30, Tony entered a plea of not guilty to all charges. The pre-trial was set for April 15th and the trial for April 27th. As we know, COVID's ruined our lives, so (laughs) that didn't happen. (laughs) In seeking a public defender to represent him on the murder case, Tony indicated he had $200,000 in debt, which we know it's really a lot more than that. His only listed asset was a vehicle worth $1,500, which also makes me wonder why they didn't list their other celebration house as an asset. Maybe they just had no, maybe it was. or their other vehicles unless they were leased? Yeah, and maybe it was fully, fully mortgaged. So I don't know. Maybe that would explain it. Um, so on February 25 a grand jury convened. The death penalty review panel voted unanimously to seek capital punishment.
2: News six's jury Askin was at today's news conference and jury the decision to seek death is pretty rare from the state attorney.
4: Lisa, Wright, and we just got the indictment court records today from the Osceola County Courthouse. In fact, today, top prosecutor, Air Miss Ayala, said the decision to actually seek death goes against her personal beliefs. But that decision was made today by her office's Death Penalty Review Board.
2: I can't imagine the pain and the agony that they're going through, but we are going to absolutely do all that we can to make certain that justice is served and as we as we go through this process.
4: Big news today out of Osceola County, a grand jury finding enough evidence for Anthony Tote's case to go to trial and indicted him on first degree murder charges. At a press conference today, State Attorney Aramis Ayala said Tote also now faces the death penalty, a decision made by her offices Death Penalty Review Board.
2: They have unanimously voted to seek death in this case, and that notice was filed today.
4: Investigators say Tote killed his wife, their three kids, and family dog at their celebration home. Their bodies were found last month, but authorities say they were likely killed in late December. Officials haven't yet said how the family was killed, but a report we got from the medical examiner's office said the wife, Megan, and her two boys were stabbed, although her daughter was not Intermiss Ayala said she's seeking justice.
2: As we we go through this process, it is my hope that they're able to find some semblance of peace in this process, knowing for certain that we are standing with them, and we are standing with this community to make certain justice is served.
4: And right now, Anthony Toad is being held at the Osceola County Jail on first-degree murder charges and a charge of actually cruelty to animals. No word now on when his trial will happen. Of course, we'll keep you all posted.
1: April 7th, so four months, around four months after they died, the Office of the Medical Examiner District 9 in Osceola County released the autopsy reports for Megan, Alex, Tyler, and Zoe. So these, there are some, um, I guess, graphic words here. So if this isn't what you want to hear, you might want to skip through the next little bit. But Megan, Alex, and Tyler all were found with stab wounds. All four had traces of Benadryl in their system, and the cause of death was homicidal violence of unspecified means in association with different hydramine toxicity. So they all had, you know, ben- Benadryl overdoses, which we'll speak about in a little bit more detail in a minute. There was no evidence of injury or trauma to any of their skulls, scalps, or necks. Megan had two stab wounds to her abdomen. She was likely stabbed once while she was alive and a second time as she was dying or almost dead. Alex was found to have a stab wound to his abdomen near his eighth rib on the left side. His feet were listed as mummified. So I'm assuming it might have been his feet sticking out of the blanket. It's interesting to me that they can be mummified after that amount of time. Like they were super decomposed, but I don't really get what that means. Tyler had a stab wound to the abdomen with an injury to his large intestine. Zoe had no trauma to her body. She was identified by circumstantial evidence, which not entirely sure what that was, but she was also missing a front tooth. So I'm assuming that that was possibly, um, she didn't, no one knew that it was related to her death. It's not like she'd lost a tooth. I guess she's only four, which would be quite young to lose a tooth anyway. But um, well, I saw,
0: um, I'll read it when you're done with this part, but part of decomposing like one of the stages you your teeth Uh, and your nails fall out sounds nice and says i just looked at the mummify one of the definitions is just shrivel or dry up thus preserving it so i guess it was just like dried up
1: and i guess you know if the blanket if if it was him who was wrapped in the blanket and his feet were out the rest of the body might have been a little bit more preserved by the blanket like it would have slowed it down or you know done something different to the decom decomp
0: Ugh, walking into that room must have been awful.
1: The autopsy reports revealed that Detective Cole Miller of the Osceola County Sheriff's Department brought two knives to the medical examiner's office. Both were labelled Buck USA and had tips with double-edged blades. One knife had a green and black handle, the other had a black and grey handle and had dried blood on it. So, when we were speaking about the mummification, I read a thing from Melissa O'Neill, who was the lead agent on the case, and she said, quote, the boys' bodies are as black as leather, um, you know, end Sorry. quote. And then it says, the bodies had been locked inside for so long, there was no blood available for toxicology testing. So, liver, brain, and chest fluid were tested along with a hair sample.
0: I'm guessing that. Along with regular decomposition, since they had no power, it probably hot in there and probably accelerated.
1: Yeah, I guess, you know, even though it's winter, it'd be still warm down there in Florida.
0: Yeah. After hearing this and reading about it, it got me wondering a little bit about how bodies decompose and because it seems like not that long of a period of time for them to be, like, so decomposed. But I found, according to the website, aftermath which is actually a crime scene cleanup company um they said 24 to 72 hours after death the internal organs decompose three to five days after death the body starts to bloat and blood containing foam leaks from the mouth and nose which made me think of tammy daybell yep eight to ten days after death the body turns from green to red as the blood decomposes and the organs in the abdomen accumulate gas several weeks after death nails and teeth fall out one month after death the body starts to liquefy then i saw so there's four stages of decay yeah i'm guessing that they were in probably stage three so i'll just read stage two and three So stage two is bloating and it says leaked enzymes from the first stage begin producing many gases the sulfur containing compounds that The bacteria release also cause skin discoloration. Due to the gases, the human body can double in size. In addition, insect activity can be present. The microorganisms and bacteria produce extremely unpleasant odors called putrefaction. These odors often alert others that a person has died and can linger long after the body has been removed. And stage three is active decay, which is fluids released through the orifices indicate the beginning of active decay. Organs, muscles, and skin become liquefied. When all the body's soft tissue decomposes, hair, bones, cartilage, and other byproducts of decay remain, the cadaver loses the most mass during this stage.
1: It sounds like there wasn't. So gross. Yeah. Yuck. I can't even imagine coming across a scene like that. Smelly. Mm. So it's assumed that Tony drugged the family with, dren- with Benadryl, sorry, before he suffocated them one by one and he stabbed the older three, so his wife and the two older boys, to make sure they were dead. I'm assuming maybe Zoe passed just from the Benadryl, which is why she had no stab wounds. Sorry, the Benadryl and the suffocation, which is why she had no stab wounds. Um, but they released the amount of Benadryl's Benadryl that the family had. So Megan had 5.02 milligrams per kilogram. I think this is how you guys phrase it. Alex had 6.687 milligrams per kilogram. Tyler had the most. He had 10.362 milligrams and Zoe had 2.724 milligrams. So with their weights, that means Megan had ingested 235 milligrams of Benadryl, Alex 268 milligrams, Tyler 395 milligrams, and Zoe 37 milligrams.
0: I looked up the lethal dosage and- from, like, some experiments and whatever. It said that for kids, a lethal dose can be 500 milligrams in total, but for adults it's 20 to 40 milligrams per kilogram. So it seems they were all under the lethal yeah.
1: dose. so I wonder if he just did that to kind of knock them out to make it easier to... Um... It also makes
0: me wonder, how did he give it to them, like, did without the, like, you know?
1: Yeah, I don't know. Like, did he put it in their drinks or... When you taste
0: it, I don't know.
1: That was the medical examiner reports, which we've got up on the blog as well. Just a little bit of an awkward aside. After all this happened, Tony was featured in a piece in the local newspaper in Colchester, and it was about Colchester is kind. So we've got the image, it's, you know, an image of him and. He's part of the It's basically culture. as
0: bad as the Chris Watts
1: Father's Day <laughs> And it's funny, well, funny, you know, interesting. This appeared just pages after a story about him in the same newspaper that the other story was about him murdering his family. So the editor did not do a great job there. A kind murderer. <laughs> um, so May 5th, so only a few months ago now, the crime scene photos were released. I'll put them all up on the blog, but you can see... So there's photos of the knives. One knife in particular does seem to have blood on it. There's, I can see, maybe five or six blood spots plus, you know, a few little smears of blood. The other one just looks with no blood. So that's that I'm assuming that was one of the knives he used. Um, they also released photos of Tyler Tote's clothes. He had a Create Your Own Superhero shirt on and some boxer shorts. And you can see... They are quite bloody. Um, I'm assuming a lot of it is probably decomposition as well, but you can see blood stains on there. There's a photo of the bedroom where they were found. So this is the bedroom that speculated that you could see from the road. Um, I can see it. You know, there's a four-poster bed. There's a bloody pink blanket or bedding on the bed, which I think is what you could see from the road. It's a big mess. Mm-hmm. There's, like, cords everywhere just blood on the carpet it looks like it's very very um he put them all in the same room so you know there's another picture there's a teddy bear and like a scarf and um, babushka dolls like there's just stuff everywhere so it's chaos he's obviously put all the bodies in one room i guess to try and maybe contain the smell that might be part of why that's
0: quite disgusting
1: yeah I feel sorry for the landlord who has to deal with all this after. Um, Interestingly, the two boys, Alex and Tyler, were found with rosary beads. Alex was wearing um, a black set of rosary beads and Tyler, it says, was in possession. So I don't know if that means he was wearing it or if he was holding it or whatever, of a lavender colored rosary beads. They also found boxes of Benadryl, drill, and allergy tablets. So looks maybe he put the tablets into Megan's drinks and made, you know, I don't know. There's a lot anyway. There's three boxes of it. And the liquid too. Yeah. There's a photo of the downstairs, which I'm assuming might be like a basement. It's, that's not too out of place. There's some exercise equipment and stuff that looks pretty normal. One interesting thing is that um, it – emerged that Tony had bought a gun. He attempted to purchase a gun on December 19, 2019. For some reason, he ended up with a pellet gun. We don't know why he didn't get a proper gun. Did he not have enough money? Did he not pass a background check? We don't know. But he purchased the gun for $49.99, a box of pellets for $9.99, a Gatorade and some candy at a local sports store. It's just embarrassing. Yeah. There are photos of the gun, um... Like, looks just like a black, smallish gun. Um, And it's interesting that photos were entered into evidence that showed two wounds on Tony's body that was similar to what a pellet wound might have looked like. None of the family members were found with pellet wounds. However, it has been speculated that he did use the gun to kill Breezy, the family dog, which kind of makes sense to me but also still seems weird. Gross um just still in the crime scene photos one of the photos is a corkboard. is that what you guys call them a cork board yeah <laughs> <laughs> family photos so you know there's the kids all smiling and, and laughing quote. yeah the gandhi quote i will not let anyone walk through my mind with their dirty feet and then there's like a motivational thing that says never quit ever it's also a, a drawing of a, a unicorn cat yeah yeah <laughs> very cute they were cute kids So anyway, we'll put all those photos up. You can check them out. They're not – there is blood. There's nothing super, super graphic though. If you're okay with blood, you should be okay to have a look at the photos. Before we chat about updates and what we think, you know, happened, I just wanted to speak about one more crazy piece to this puzzle
2: the 44-year-old physical therapist came from a troubled background. His father was convicted of attempting to murder his mother, Loretta Tote, in 1980. The appeal states, quote, while Robert Tote was out of the house, an individual entered the Tote residence and shot Loretta Tote. Although the bullet fire destroyed her left eye and remains lodged in her skull, Loretta Tote survived the attack. While we were digging into
1: the Um, Tote family history we're trying to find out more about you know what happened and whatever a group member came across an article from a 1981 edition of the Philadelphia Inquirer it spoke about a man named Robert Tote Robert was a special education teacher and wrestling coach at Ben Salem High School he lived with his wife Loretta and their two young kids Anthony who was four at the time and his younger sister so Anthony Robert's son is our Anthony Tony Tote Robert was living a double life. He was having an affair with a 17 year old girl and he was also engaged to a nurse in a neighbouring town. His fiancee had already spoken to the priest at her church and had announced the engagement to her friends and family. Robert was feeling the pressure of having multiple families and multiple lives. Robert decided to approach a 19 year old called John Chiamonte, I think is how you say it. John was a former student of Robert's and had significant learning disabilities. Robert asked John to carry out an important assignment. Robert gave John a key and a gun, and he asked John to kill his wife, Loretta. John entered the tote house one night drunk. He was clumsy, and he bumped into something in case he was trying to find Loretta's bedroom. She woke up, and she sat up. He fired the gun from a distance, and the bullet went into her left eye. John fled the house, stopping on the way out to vomit on the front lawn. Tony Tot, who was four at the time, woke up, and witnessed John leaving. He said he told police the boy woke up and heard his mother screaming. Loretta survived the shooting and the bullet became lodged near her brain. She lost her left eye. She was adamant that her husband, Robert, was innocent. She even attended his trial. He was sentenced to 10 years in prison for the attempted murder of his wife. It took Loretta years to accept what Robert had done. She eventually divorced him and moved from Pennsylvania to Connecticut which that kind of case reminded me of the Chris Porco case. I don't know if you – are you familiar with that one?
0: No.
1: Chris Porco was a a guy – it's a little bit older – in 2006, his parents were attacked by a man with an axe one night. The dad died. It's the craziest story. We might even do an episode on it one day. But the dad actually survived the initial axe attack and got up and started – yes,
0: I do. I know. – taking –
1: carrying out his day like normal. I think he tried to unload the dishwasher and – because he had such a traumatic brain injury. Yeah, he like, got up, went to the bathroom, like, yeah. did
0: whatever you do in the bathroom. Then he went to unload the dishwasher.
1: <laughs> yeah. Like, just, anyway, he died. Like, he died not long after he did all that. But Chris's mother survived. And she always has said that she believes he's innocent. Nine months later, it says, she urged authorities to leave Christopher alone and to search for Peter's real killer or killers. So I don't know, I'm assuming to this day she still is convinced of his innocence where he's in jail now, sentenced to 50 years to life. So it's just interesting to me that sometimes I guess when something so traumatic happens, you really don't want to believe it. Loretta eventually did, but I just can't believe that one family, like did this have something to do with why Tony killed his family? Who knows? I was just listening to um, a
0: different podcast about – killer kids and it talked a lot about nature versus nurture like if certain traits run in your family that make you more susceptible to become a murderer or is it like a learned behavior but i mean in this case it could be either way like he could have some like more genetic traits that would make you more susceptible to this behavior but then also living through your dad trying Mm. to murder your mom or whatever
1: and like he obviously like you know it's not like he slept through the whole thing. He woke up at some point. I'm assuming he saw his mother injured and bleeding from the head, and you know all that. That would have to be traumatic for someone. Not obviously not saying it excuses what he did, but maybe it did have an impact on what happened this year. Yeah. So anyway, that was just an interesting addition to this crazy, crazy story. But the most recent update is that due to COVID, the tri- pre-trial has been postponed. And the new date is currently set for December 16 this year. So, will it happen? Hopefully, won't be delayed too much more than that. But there hasn't been anything else since that and I actually found it quite interesting when we were researching this that there's just not actually that much information on this case. There's hardly any clips like I was hoping we could find some clips of the kids to put in you know them singing or whatever you know playing musical instruments but there's just not a lot I guess it all was kept under wraps and then he was arrested so quickly that um, you know, there's just not a lot. I remember
0: it like didn't even make the news until they were found dead. Yeah. And then the death investigation was all over and then even after that I feel like it just disappeared
1: yeah and even when they said you know it was just weird it was a death investigation that wasn't actually said it was a murder and then it just all happened quickly and I I can't even believe that the original trial was scheduled to start in April that I know I've spoken before about why some cases go to trial so quickly and other cases don't um that would have been you know four months after they were found which seems extra super quick to me
0: Maybe the confession helps
1: because it was the same with Chris Watts. He also confessed and his happened pretty quick. True point. And I guess the other ones, maybe they need to build more of a case.
0: Another thing I I thought of, um, how we were just talking about like kids, like learning behaviors and whatever nature versus nurture. There was this experiment called the Bobo doll experiment. And it was trying to test out social learning theory, which is, that people learn largely by observing, imitating, and modeling. So they did this thing where they had a room full of younger kids and they had this Bobo doll, like it's like a clown. And an adult would come in and just like beat up the doll, like kick it, be mean to it, and they would leave and then see what the kids would do. And like unprompted, all the kids also beat up the doll and were mean to the doll. <laughs> so it's supposed to just like be proof that...
1: Nature versus nurture and all that, Yeah.
0: Yeah, like if kids see adults doing these things, they're also more likely to do it. They're influenced by watching.
1: Everyone always says, you know, kids can be so mean. And I think they can, they absolutely can, but I think a lot of the time they just go with what they see. So, you know, they're not old enough to distinguish that this isn't – obviously I'm not talking about all kids and it will be different for different ages, but, you know, if they see – they'll model what they see other older kids doing or other kids doing just to – without having much discretion about what's right and wrong sometimes mm-hmm. anyway but um i don't know like in, in terms of what actually happened there's no obviously no debate about what happened he, he murdered them we've got seen their medical examiner reports but i guess that it's just the why for me did he yeah, die i feel like it's so crazy yeah like, what how did
0: this happen why did this happen like everyone says he seemed just kind of like a normal guy yeah the circumstances around it are just weird like the rosaries and they're all in one room and like why did they pack the car up like did they actually end up going somewhere
1: yeah yeah i I would love to know that as well maybe you know did he always plan to do this did he really plan to kill himself i'm not convinced he did i think that he made a half-assed attempt to kill himself because he you know didn't want to die
0: i thought it was just weird that he like tried to overdose on Benadryl. I still don't really know how common that is, but I started looking it up about diphenhydramine and I found a stat that 2011 there was 19,000 emergency room visits and 9,000 of those were suicide attempts. So that's a lot higher than I thought it would have been. But also that um, diphenhydramine is generally abused because it gives you a sedative effect, and it can cause delirium and hallucinations. Yeah. So there was a lot of instances where people would use it to sleep or if they're stressed out, they would start taking Benadryl to kind of try to calm them down. But then you end up taking too much and you get delirious and you start seeing shit and you get paranoid. Like there was one um, like study, I guess, or just research article about there's a 17-year-old who took 24, 25 milligram tablets of Benadryl in three hours because he was upset about a breakup with his girlfriend and was having a hard time sleeping. His parents noticed him being visibly agitated that he was talking to birds, trees, and the walls. So that makes me wonder if he was generally abusing Benadryl and maybe had some sort of psychotic break.
1: Mm, I never really thought about that.
0: That could be a possibility. It just it just seems so weird to me.
1: My personal, you know, maybe theory is that he killed them because he knew what was going to happen with the fraud stuff. Maybe he was embarrassed. He didn't, like, I know it just sounds like a stupid thing to do, but maybe he just didn't want them to know. And so he thought, the only way I can get out of this is to kill them. And
0: I don't know, how, like, how credible it is, but I did see another stat reading that most family annihilators are white guys in their, <laughs> like, 30s to 40s. And usually do it because of some sort of loss of control.
1: Yeah, which would absolutely be in this case. I know with Chris Watts, he lost control over his marriage and the affair he was having. I know people have speculated could it and have been the baby been being born? Yeah, could it have been something like an affair? And I don't think it was in this case. It's never ever come out. You know, obviously no. it might come out, but I think for him it was probably more financial. And, you know, I'm assuming Megan, when we spoke about the co-op homeschool, if that is true, that it was 10,000 per kid. She was very passionate about her children and their schooling. So maybe she was pushing for this co-op schooling to happen. And that was just another pressure for him.
0: Yeah, I think that. And then maybe it led him to start abusing drugs.
1: Because, you know, I don't – I'm assuming that if he was this much in debt, I guess it was even more so the fraud. But in debt, he could have declared bankruptcy and, you know, started again. But it was probably the fraud where he was going to be facing jail that maybe yeah, he didn't. it
0: just seemed like a big mess. Mm. And he did say – I I feel like it is probably true, but I don't know, that, that Megan really had no idea, like, about the fraud or the money yeah. or the bills.
1: Yeah. Which seems – Interesting, but maybe maybe he just always dealt with that.
0: Yeah, it just fell out of pressure to keep up the image.
1: Yeah, and it like it does sound like you know I'm sure in Florida they could have moved to a more like it sounds like Celebration is an expensive place. It's you know this perfect town, so they could have moved yeah. somewhere that was cheaper and still for the climate. Like they obviously had a lot of things to keep up with, and they were expensive.
0: Yeah, it seemed they cared a lot about keeping appearances. Yeah.
1: And I think it was mainly him even maybe more so who wanted to do that. Like I don't know if Megan seemed – obviously we don't know, but it doesn't seem like she was as as worried about that as he was. Yeah. Um, I know you sent me the other thing about someone who knew Tony. I'll just read it out because it gives you a bit of an insight into what he was like and how difficult it is for people to understand that he did this. So it says – I remember when Zoe was about to be born, he was so excited. He talked about making her nursery and then she was born. I was thrilled for him. He couldn't wait to show me all the cute little things she was doing. I said, oh, she's so cute. And he said, I know, isn't she? And look, something, you know, something else. I love her so much. And then it goes on and it says, then he was really busy and kind of stressed. Okay, he's got two businesses. He's trying to open a third. I met his dog. Oh, my God, she's so cute. And he replied, isn't she? I love her. Something, you know, something cute about talking (laughs) about the dog. Um, And then it keeps going, nothing seems real. The news keep calling him Anthony and I keep having to translate it and go, oh, Tony. I keep hoping they'll say something like, he was schizophrenic. He was on bath salts. He had a psychotic break. I think because it distances him from the crime and for some reason that makes me feel a tiny bit better. I keep reading people say that he should get the death penalty and my instinct is to defend him because of who I well thought he was and then I remember. Sad. Yeah it really does sound like it was crazy totally out of the blue. But it's also it seems almost like he was planning it too though. He would have had to plan it you know he obviously had a plan to keep the bodies but, like, in this pretty room. in advance. Yeah he bought the gun he told them they were going off the grid like i wish i hope yeah when the trial happens more comes out about what megan's social media and you know texts and phone records and all that say so what she told people i hope all that stuff comes out because that will give us the other side to the story
0: and i want to know what he was doing the whole time that they were dead in the house with him like and with no power so like what
1: was he doing Ugh, Ugh gross that's why i imagine this house was just like filth yeah, flies and maggots and ugh. Like that downstairs, yeah. I'm assuming that's a basement. It doesn't look too crazy filthy. Like it looks fine. But yeah, the bedroom yeah, that looks is, fine. is pretty hardcore. All
0: right, well, that's really all we have for the Todd, the Tote, tote. Family, tote family murders. Um, hopefully we get some updates sooner than later and coronavirus doesn't keep pushing this out because we're dying to know more information and we'll definitely – Keep everyone updated as soon as we find anything out. As Olivia said, you can find any of the pictures or the sound clips and all of our sources and the entire script on our website at truecrimesociety.com. If you're not in our Facebook group, you should 100% join that because that's where a lot of this stuff comes from. We ask a lot of questions about the podcast, get ideas from the podcast for there. It's a fun group most of the time.
1: (laughs) People have been a little rowdy lately, but what are you going to do? Yeah, it's good. We have fun. Come join us. We've um, tossed around maybe a few different topics and things that we want to do for our next episode, so we're still just finalizing those. If you are interested in learning more before the podcasts are released, just make sure you come and join us in our group, True Crime Society.
0: Oh, I do want to say something else. One, I forgot to say in the podcast. I know we posted it. I wanted to thank Nikki for helping me with the research for Holly Bobo, and this one, Lazie and Kelly both yeah. helped us research. They did a great job and, and they put in they, a lot of work. So they thanks, did guys.
1: a ton of job on the blogs at the time as well. Like, there's a screenshot blog of the Tote Stuff Tote Stuff, and um, yeah, so they did a great job with the blogs too that's all we have (laughs) crap do you want me to say it
0: (laughs) no (laughs) we don't have a tagline anymore (laughs) (laughs) so bye see ya (laughs) bye